Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Father, we cling to your gospel and your guarantee, and we cling to your word now. Help us to hear it as we should. Help us to hear it in a way that overcomes the the work of death within us, overcomes it with life. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The great church father, Tertullian, once asked the question, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? Not very much, in his opinion. In a similar vein, with the same idea, I want to ask the question, what does faith have to do with longing? What does faith have to do with longing? Because a lot of times, our longings, our desires, the drive that we feel for fulfillment, seems like evidence to us of the absence of faith. Like if we had more faith, then maybe we wouldn't have these longings. And so, guided by the author of Hebrews and by the Apostle Paul, I want us to think this morning about what the true relationship between faith and longing really is. Because actually, people of faith are, by definition, people of longing. People whose longings are not only real, but but seen by God and approved of by God. Our longings are not evidence that we lack faith, but that we have it. But we have to descend into the gutter for a moment before we can get to uh, the high places. In advertising, there's this famous mantra, you've heard it before, sex sells. Sex sells. For a brief moment, I contemplated titling my sermon that, and then I quickly decided that's a terrible 
idea. But you've heard the phrase, and you know what they're talking about, and it seems as if in society we see this borne out. Whether you're watching commercials on television or you're scrolling through a social media feed, it seems like all the advertising that bombards us comes from that place of understanding. And yet, that mantra is not technically accurate. Sex doesn't sell. Desire sells. Desire sells. And desire comes in many different forms. What sells is not just desire, though. What sells is the desire and the promise of fulfillment. If you ask yourself what works on you, what do you fall for, that's what it is. It's the promise that what you desire could be yours. It's not just an image of beauty that's held out to you, and you say, oh, I want that. It's an image of beauty that's held out with the promise that this could be yours. Or even more transformational, this could be you. That through my product, you could become the thing, the person, the image that you desire to be. And ironically, even though these promises are never fulfilled, we keep chasing after the fulfillment. We keep buying the products, even though they don't deliver on the thing that they promised, because our desire is stronger than our disappointment. We tell ourselves never again, I'm not going to be a fool. I'm not going to buy that stuff. It's not going to give me happiness. It's not going to give me what I desire. And then we quickly forget that resolution and we buy again. We fall for it again. Because we're not just creatures of desire. We're creatures of desire who hope. We're filled with hope that our desires might be fulfillable. It might actually come true. That longing for fulfillment is deeply human. That longing to see our desires fulfilled is something very human about us. And longing like that, with hope, is essential to the life of faith. As people of faith, we're called to long with hope of fulfillment. Okay, we went into the gutter. Let me give you a more elevated example of this. This is thanks to my friend David Geyer, who introduced me to this Brahms leader, this song called Zenzut which is German for this kind of desire, this deep desire. It's a beautiful piece of music that illustrates this this sense of human longing. And when you listen to it, you're just filled with this idea of like something outside you, some ideal that your heart could grasp for. And the music itself conveys this. I've played this to students before and asked them afterwards, even though I gave them no translation of the German text, the lyrics of the song, I asked them just based on what you heard, what is this song about? And the crazy thing is they got it. They described that sense of, of, of yearning, of desire, of, of like wanting fulfillment, but also a kind of sadness at the lack of fulfillment. In fact, the, the way they described it was actually better than the text that is set to music, just as the music is better than the text. Zainzut. It's a consciousness of the imperfection of life and yet the reality that we yearn to obtain some ideal beyond it. 
this human striving, this sense of our incompleteness and yet our desire to be complete, to be made whole. Something deeply, deeply real in our lives. And as people of faith, we have this too. We tell ourselves maybe that that's something that we have but that we're meant to suppress. That what God wants us to do is something kind of zen-like to empty ourselves of desire. But that's not the way that our text this morning treats desire. The heroes of the faith did not empty themselves of desire. They didn't uh, drain the hope out of themselves so that they might accept with equanimity whatever happens. Instead, they were filled with hope. The life of faith requires hope. The life of faith requires and rewards patience too. When you look at the beginning of Hebrews 11 and you read those famous words, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, it's tempting to think that the author of Hebrews is giving us a definition of faith. But he's not. What he's doing there is talking about one aspect of faith that's relevant to what he's already written in the earlier chapter. Now, when I read these words, I'm tempted to say something like this. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That sounds like we might be able to say something like faith is longing. Not only is faith not antithetical to longing, but there's a sense in which faith is, by definition, a kind of longing. We're always telling people they should have faith. You should have faith. You should have more faith. But what does that mean exactly? What is faith? Is faith literally just the assurance of things hoped for, or is it more? Well, based on what I've already said, I think you know the answer is there's more. And if you're looking for a lot more, you should turn, as always, to the Westminster Larger Catechism, which is always ready to give you more on whatever you're asking. So in question 72, it picks up this this question, what is justifying faith? It says, justifying faith is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and Word of God, whereby he, being convinced of his sin and misery and of the disability in himself and all other creatures to recover him out of his lost condition, not only assents to the truth of the promise of the gospel, but receives and rests upon Christ and his righteousness, therein held forth for pardon of sin, for the accepting and accounting of his person righteous in the sight of God for salvation. So yes, there's more to faith than longing. And yet, even as you read that very technical description of faith, there's a thread of longing that's in there. There's that that sense of the unhappiness, recognizing our sinful condition and the brokenness of the world, a desire for some completion, for some wholeness, and a realization that that wholeness can only be found through Christ and His righteousness. That longing is what we might call a yearning for communion with God. When we come to terms with our own sinfulness, we realize that that communion has been broken by sin. That relationship that we long for, there's an obstacle in the way, an obstacle that can only be taken away by Christ because we're powerless to restore that relationship. Only Christ can do that. He does it through His righteousness so that when we receive and rest 
on Christ alone for our salvation, we are restored to a renewed relation with God. He restores us to God's presence, in other words. And that restoration is fulfillment with a capital F. Like everything you long for and hope for, and whatever type or shadow you pursue it in, what's behind it, the real thing that your soul is striving for, is to find yourself face-to-face in communion with the God who made you. That restoration is only possible through Christ. So yes, hopeful longing for fulfillment is a good way to think about faith. But hope doesn't take away the longing. The fact that we have hope and fulfillment doesn't remove the reality that our lives are lives of longing, that we're constantly longing and striving for something that we don't have, that there is a future fulfillment, which means that there is a present emptiness that we must live with. Hope doesn't take away the longing, but it does change the longing. It transforms the longing. It makes us long for something different, and we seek it from a different source. That phrase, the substance of things hoped for, isn't the only thing we might say about faith, but it does clue us in to something important. It explains how faith is the answer to the problem of Hebrews 10. The problem of Hebrews 10 is endurance. In Hebrews 10, the encouragement we receive is to hold to the faith and don't abandon it. To don't turn aside. To don't lose hope. How is it possible? How is it possible not to? How is it possible not to walk away? Well, the answer is faith. But specifically, the aspect of faith that connects us to longing patiently. Being patient with God. Living in this time of longing faithfully. Faith supplies the absent justifications for patient endurance by borrowing them from the future. All of the reasons why we should be patient are not found here by looking around at the state of things now. But they're borrowed from the future fulfillment, the substance of things that are now only hoped for, the evidence of things that are not seen yet. Those realities, faith, essentially takes and drags back into the present and hands them to us so that we can be assured that they will indeed come true, that our hopes will indeed be fulfilled. In other words, the longing of the faithful is for the life to come. We're meant to be creatures of longing. As believers, we are meant to faithfully long, but not for the wrong things for the right ones, to direct our longings, not to get rid of them, not to deny them, but to direct them towards their proper source, which is Christ, Christ to come. That's what the patriarchs did. In this excerpt from Hebrews 11, describing the great heroes of the faith, we're told that these patriarchs were people whose faith was in the future, It was in the life to come. They all died in faith, the author of Hebrews says, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. 
He says, for people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland, but not here. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So even then, these early heroes of the faith are longing for this future that is to come. You think about it, in Abraham's lifetime, he was a stranger and an exile. He traveled from his homeland into an unknown land that had been promised to him. And when the story of the patriarchs comes to an end at the end of the book of Genesis, in the life of Joseph, once again, Joseph is in exile. Worse than that, his people have been now led into what will become bondage in Egypt. Definitely a stranger in a strange land. These people might have been forgiven for thinking that the promise that they'd been given would not be fulfilled based on what happened in their lives. But their hope wasn't based on what was happening in their lives. It was based on the future, on the city that God was preparing, the city that could only be glimpsed from afar. That's what they were focused on, what we might call the eschatological horizon. And that focus sustained them in patience now. now. The author of Hebrews says that the way that they saw themselves demonstrated that they knew something. Their, their sense of where home was was different than ours often is. Home wasn't here. It was in the age to come. These men who received those early promises, when you think about it, if you're Abraham and you receive that covenant promise, that's really great that God has made you a promise, but by virtue of the fact that you're the first generation, or with his sons, the second, and then the third, and the fourth, that means you're actually the farthest that anyone will ever be from the fulfillment of the promise that you've been given. These are heroes of the faith indeed, because what's been promised to them will not be fulfilled for generations, and yet they will patiently endure. They'll live and they'll love, they'll decline and they'll die, they will return to the dust without having seen the fulfillment that they were promised. But faith made the fulfillment such a reality to them that they could never settle for home here. That they always knew there was something God had created for them. Their eyes were fixed, not on any earthly city, but on the heavenly one, the spiritual one that God had made for them. They couldn't have named that city, but we can. It's the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21. The problem for us as exiles is that we have to awaken to the reality of our exile. You might say there's a twofold problem with human longing. Right? Our desires are real, but they're distorted by sin. We want what we want, but not what we should. And we can't always distinguish between the desires that destroy us and the ones that restore us. Beyond that, we can't even name them rightly. We can't name our longings so that as we pursue them, we pursue them all too often blindly, and we seek their fulfillment in sources that could never deliver on the things that we long for. That reality is what the preacher of Ecclesiastes describes as the futility of life under the sun. That constant striving and failure to fulfill our longings is what life in a sinful world is all about. But there's another way, a simpler way, to think about that condition. 
which is this. Most of us are exiles who don't realize we're exiles. We're strangers who think we're at home. And part of what it means to have faith in Christ is to see your relationship to this place and this time and this world differently. To recognize that this place, this time, and this world, the reason they keep failing you is that they cannot possibly deliver on the desires of your heart. Instead of constantly returning to them in the hope that they will, instead, try to recognize that what you're longing for cannot be found here. And if you're longing for something that can only be found there, then that must be your home. C.S. Lewis wrote, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. If God has promised you a dwelling place in the age to come, then you can know for certain that this isn't your home. And you can live accordingly. The gifts of God are gracious, but we do have to wait. Faith demands patience. But God's gifts come with divine guarantees, as we see in Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5. Hebrews 11 spoke about dwelling places and homelands and cities. But Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 does the same thing, right? He talks about tents and buildings and houses as well. I mean, look at what he says in uh, the first five verses there. We know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Now, Paul wrote this letter, and he never shared it with me for revision suggestions before it was sent. Now, I would have told him, if he had given me a chance, that he's mixing his metaphor. Like, he starts off there, and it sounds like he's talking in the same terms as the author of Hebrews, but then he says something weird about the dwelling that he's referring to. He talks about putting it on. Now, that's not how you work with dwellings, right? You go into dwellings, but you don't put them on. You don't go to your house and then put your house on. So he starts by talking about dwelling places, but then he kind of transitions to talking about uh, clothing, like being clothed. So we have two metaphors here from like the, the, the thing that shelters us to, I guess, something that shelters us, but in a more personal way. So the metaphor is, is kind of contracting a little bit, becoming more intimate. Well, what's he talking about? What is the tent, the earthly tent that he's referring to? Well, it's literally your body. He's talking about the flesh. Just as in the incarnation, Christ tabernacles or tents with us. And in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, your body is a temple or dwelling place for the spirit. Here, the tent is the body. It's the fallen body of sin, the body that we long to be free of, to be delivered from its infirmity, from its limitation. But of course, he's also talking about another body as well, another dwelling place, one made by God, a glorious body, a spiritual body, the resurrected, glorified body that is to come. 
So the idea is he longs to put off this flesh, not to be fleshless, but to have better flesh, a better body is what he's talking about here. This corrupt human body is a tabernacle. It is a dwelling place, but it's not a home. It's not permanent. Paul's longing to get rid of it, though, is interesting because it's not what we often think. He's not wishing for non-existence. He makes it clear in his idea of nakedness. Like He's not wanting to not exist. He's not saying, I wish I could just no longer be. And he's also not saying, I wish that my good spirit could be freed from my bad body so that I could be a good spirit forever. That would be a Hellenistic, a a Greek aspiration, because they saw the flesh as inherently corrupt and the spirit as inherently good. And they imagined that that the, the nice thing would be to escape this mortal coil, to be freed from the prison of the body, so that you could be a disembodied spirit and live in that purer way. But that was never the Christian hope. Paul articulates the Christian hope, what it is we long for, not to be bodiless, but to have a glorified body. Not to get rid of the flesh, but to have this all-too-fallen flesh replaced with glorious flesh. Not to be naked, as our first parents were, in shame after confronted by their sin, but to be housed in a glorious body with which there can be no shame. It says, what is mortal is swallowed up by life. What is mortal is swallowed up by life. That all these things will be not destroyed, but swallowed up, not by death, but by life. That death will be overcome by life as we're given this great gift in the world to come. So we see the goal of our longing in these two images, the city and the body. When we are in God's city, clothed in spiritual bodies, we will be restored to full communion with God, with one another, and with ourselves. That is the object of our longing. Whatever lies we tell ourselves, whatever else we try to substitute, that is what makes us discontent in this life. That is why we will never be at peace as long as we are here. And the Spirit, Paul says, seals the faithful for our long wait. And that final line at the end of our text, Paul says the Spirit is given to us as a guarantee. We can be patient, faithfully, because the Spirit is given to us to empower us in that patience. So you might say we're called to spiritual waiting. But in what sense does the Spirit function for us as a guarantee? He says God has given us the Spirit as a guarantee, but how does that guarantee actually work? How can you actually be assured by that guarantee? Well, the work of the Spirit in us is how the Spirit testifies that the promises will be fulfilled, especially when you think about our coming to faith which the New Testament describes as a work of the Holy Spirit. The fact that you can call upon Christ for salvation is evidence that you have been given this promise, and it is guaranteed with the Spirit, because none of us could call upon His name on our own strength apart from the Spirit. 
So that reality, the fact that we have come to the cross, is one of the ways that the Spirit testifies to us that our patient longing will be fulfilled. This is why in Philippians 1.6, Paul writes, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. How does the Spirit function as a guarantee? By starting something in us that cannot be completed until Christ comes again. Paul says, I am sure that if he has begun this work in you, that he will bring it to completion. That's a guarantee. If I can see the Spirit working in me, I can feel assurance that my waiting is not in vain and that God will fulfill His promises to me. How else does the Spirit testify? As we talked about in Sunday school this morning, through the ordinary means of grace. The gift of the Spirit applying grace to us through the Word, through the sacraments, through prayer. These very simple gifts are given to us to sustain us and to give us renewed hope. So that day by day, week by week, the Spirit is constantly giving us assurance, constantly reminding us what you endure now, you can endure faithfully because this is not the end. What you desire will be fulfilled. The emptiness that you feel will be filled. You can believe it. I'm here to testify to you that God will complete the work in you that He has begun through me. That's what faith has to do with longing. Because we must long, we have been given the gift of faith so that we might long with hope. So a couple of things to think about as we close. First, we all need to awaken to the fact that we're strangers in a strange land, that we're exiles, which means giving up on futile efforts to restore our relationship with God through means that can never bring it about. We are creatures of desire. All too often our desires are disordered by sin. You see it in your life every day. The things that you direct towards sources other than God, the devotion that you give to to other saviors, other means of fulfillment. If this is true, if we want to live as people of faith, then we need to awaken to the fact that this isn't our home, and that none of these promises are for us, that we have a better promise, and that's where we want to invest our hope. Another thing we can do is wait for the life to come with confidence. Like, if we've been promised something, then yes, we have to wait, but we don't have to wait in despair. We don't have to wait as if we're not sure if it's going to happen or not. We don't have to bear patiently with the suffering and the injustice that we see all around us, as if maybe nothing is ever going to be done about it. We don't have to cry out, oh, woe is me, I just don't think this this world will ever be made right. We can have confidence that it will be made right, that God will renew this creation, that he will keep his word. That's the difference. This world is not our home yet, but he is going to remake this world into a home for us. And we can be sure of that. And the last thing is this. We need patience. As Dan said last week, patience is the thing we're not really good at. Christians, as long as we've been waiting, we haven't really done it well. 
the way that we've tended to wait is to tell ourselves, oh, Jesus will be here next weekend. Oh, he's coming a month from now. Oh, it's going to be on this date at this time. Everybody be ready. The way we wait is pretending like we're not waiting. But we've been called, as it turns out, to a longer wait than we thought. And there's a way of waiting well. And that's to lean on the Spirit. To turn to the Spirit for patience. You're never going to wait well until you're relying on the Spirit day by day to give you the strength that you lack. So we need to be people who recognize this isn't our home. People aren't looking to put down roots here in the way that we so often do. But having acknowledged that not hopeless people, not cynical people, not people who just look around and say, oh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket and I wish it would hurry up and get there. But instead, hopeful, optimistic people who believe that God's work of redemption will come to pass and can have hope in it and who are trusting in the Spirit day by day to get us there. That's who we've been called to be. And as we contemplate during Advent this season of longing and what it means to be longing for Christ, let's just think about what it meant for those who went before us. Think about those heroes of the faith, the people who died without seeing the fulfillments. They were living the lives that we live now, just in an earlier time. They were waiting for Christ's first coming. We're waiting for his second coming. But in every other respect, it's the same. Only this, God's given us so much more. We know so much more. What they couldn't name, we can name. What they hadn't tasted, we have tasted. And God has surrounded us with assurances and gifts so that we can wait patiently for him. So during this season of waiting, let us wait with hope. Let us look forward, not, not to celebrating Christmas, but to celebrating Christ and his return. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.